Welcome to part four of At The Mermaid. I'm Sarah Lafford and I've spent the last five months talking to people online about their memories of the Mermaid pub in Birmingham, seen by many as the birthplace of grindcore. At The Mermaid is a capsule production, a Home of Metal project. Home of Metal's projects join the dots between music, social history, visual arts and fan cultures to produce a new perspective on heavy metal. One that is celebratory, eschews notions of high-low art and joins audiences and performers together. Home of Metal is devoted to the music that was born in and around Birmingham. Music that turned up the volume, down-tuned guitars and introduced a whole new meaning to the word heavy. It was probably, you know, at the, at the kind of edge of punk. You know, that was kind of like where it was as punk as it got for me anyway, the Mermaid. So we've heard about the pub itself, the area, the community and their politics. We've also heard about some of the most memorable gigs. This time, we'll look more at the impact of the mermaid, the experience of being an outsider and the power of finding your people. Looking like a punk in the 1980s could attract a lot of negative attention. Outside the mecca of the mermaid and anything goes feel of Spark Hill, Birmingham, punks could face violence and hostility. Tim Richardson and Julie Barton explain. It definitely wasn't, you know, people hugging each other and all right, mate. It was more like, mm, look at him. Mm. But it wasn't, I've been to other venues around the time and don't know, hard to know where to place it. I think society at the time for kids, you know, teenagers was more violent. There was, there was more chance that you get beaten up in town, especially a few years before that. I mean, when going back even further, when I was about 14, I was a mod and I used to wear a suit and tie. And I remember being in town and several times being, you know, threatened or legged or someone going, oh, there's a mod and they go for you. That wasn't uncommon. And then a few years later, when I was working, I'd, I'd go to the Dome and some mainstream clubs and quite usual for a fight to break out for no good reason. Setting the context of the time, the mermaid was fairly average. I wouldn't say it was friendly and welcoming, <laughs> but you stuck to your, your own and you had your mates and, you know, you'd, you wouldn't expect any violence, really. Even though I think some people, that kind of music, fast music of any sort, metal and hardcore and things, it would attract an element of people who thought, I can go here and beat people up. But that was a minority, I think. It was also just really fucking depressing. As well. <laughs> just remember that, you know, the, the city centre being just just really grim and, like, just seemed like there was nothing really happening. Um, you know, and that's why I think a lot of a lot of the punks used to drink in like the old Irish pubs in Digbeth because it was kind of a bit safer. The city centre was didn't really feel very safe either. It just felt a bit more welcoming in Digbeth. There was just, you know, a few old Irish boys who didn't really care who was who was in the pub. And some of them quite liked having a banter as well, especially with, with the girls with the funny coloured hair. So yeah, we used to drink in there and the barrel organ which is now subside after the mermaid it was edwards number eight these used, used gigs on there as well but again they were a bit more expensive but yeah it just really felt like there was just nothing going on in birmingham you know like really in the 80s like mass unemployment still had like the very recent spectre of the riots didn't feel like a particularly cheerful place to live <laughs> but it was still better than Richard and as Steve Charlesworth from Heresy told us looking like a punk could even cut your education short I was at school but then I got suspended at the end because uh, my hair yeah I mean not nowadays you can get away with a lot more but I got I got suspended at the end I mean I got done at school three times for, for my hair for different things the last time was because I wouldn't cut it off, basically. I dyed it blonde, but it was like A, and I did put soap in it, so it did look like straw, my hair did. I got told that I had to, I had to have lessons on my own. I'd sit in a corridor on my own with a table. People would bring me work, which you wouldn't really do. You'd just knock it off and just walk around the school. And I weren't supposed to have lessons at break times with any of my friends. So in the end, when I had to go to see him after two weeks of that, he just said, are you going to cut it? And I was like, well, no. He said, well, that's it then. You're suspended. So it was basically the end of my school. So I just went back for exams. So it was like, okay, see you. 
which I mean, I, I, I didn't really enjoy school anyway. So, but I was so focused on music then anyway. It was every second was listening to music or playing music. It kind of got in the way. <laughs> so, yeah. Justin Broderick told us the Mermaid had an influence on the end of his school days too. When I left school, and I didn't leave on official grounds, I literally walked out of, I think, my third exam in a nice big hall, as you do, doing your exam. Uh, all I was excited about was I had a show organised at The Mermaid where I was promoting. I left school when I was like 15. I didn't even see out the rest of my exams. I was more excited about playing in three projects at a show I was organising at The Mermaid with six bands. One of them was Napalm Death before I joined because I met Nick Bolland. One of them was another kid I knew at school and I was in, I was playing in final. I think Fallen Because played before I joined when it was just Ben and Paul Neville. And another band I was had something to do with, I can't even remember. Basically, it was a free show. Everybody played for free. And I found the flyer the other day. I drew it all myself, put all the buses on it. And it was literally time with the day I left school. So it's like 1984, free show. And that was the only thing. I remember doing whatever exam it was. And I remember just writing bullshit. I was struck when talking to people how they rarely batted an eyelid at getting several buzzes to a gig with no guarantee of getting home. Being an underground music fan required effort in the 1980s. Pre-internet, people relied on word of mouth to learn about new music and were willing to put in a lot of effort to get hold of records and tapes, to communicate with bands and to see live shows. Like now, music's everywhere. Whereas then you had to seek it out. You couldn't listen to this stuff anywhere else. So you had to go there to listen to it. This was pre-internet. So at one point, we thought we were the only band in the UK that looked and sounded like us. Just like, get real. How could that possibly... But we had no idea unless we went to a show or we were asked to support a band that there were other bands doing something similar. When we met those bands, we didn't. I still maintain that we sound nothing like Sex Gang Children or Alien Sex Fiend or Specimen, but we looked a bit like them and they looked a bit like us. So I could see why people were making the connections. And so we as a band on occasion will go to Manchester and go to the Hacienda and see the birthday party in the gun club and be knocked out that, wow, there are bands that sound like us. And look at those guys dancing. They look like us and they look like the people who come to our shows in Birmingham. But of course, it took a long time to make these connections because it, it meant us sending tapes out by post and waiting for the reply, etc., uh, etc. Et People found out. I mean, it was the fact of if you wanted to find out, you know, you would, you'd try, you'd try. You wanted to see gigs, you wanted to go see these bands. And it was the fact of trying to find out somehow where they played, where they were playing. And then obviously it was trying to get there, unlimited funds and... Um, thumbing lifts of places and wherever. So we hitched up, hitchhiked, not all the way to, say, at the place, but we'd have so much money because to get a train, so you'd have train money, but then we'd have to hitch, say, down to the local town to get the get the train. So you'd have to thumb it, even start walking and thumb it and just trying to get there. So, yeah. Yeah, it was through uh, people letting you know, fanzines, word of mouth, really, because you didn't have the internet, you didn't have phones, so... It was quite remarkable how people got to know about these things. Well, there was no internet then, no mobile phones. I mean, Darren really, you know, he, he just printed loads and loads of flyers and he'd print them a month ahead. Once he got his, his act together, he was printing them a month ahead. So he'd have this A4 flyer with the next sort of four or five weeks gigs on. And by and large, those gigs did happen. Sometimes the lineup had changed slightly, but it's very rare that I went to the Mermaid and what I went to see wasn't on. So that was a good thing. So it was, yeah, it was just flyers based. And also, like a lot of promoters around by that time, there was quite a few record shops in Birmingham at the time. And I used to fly the record shops. Quite a very good place to go. I used to go to my lunch hour from work into places like the Plastic Factory and Swordfish, Oasis, places like that. And there'd be flyers, all the, all the gig flyers for the gigs would be in there. The promoters would do a good job of going into town one day and just flying everywhere to spread the word. That was the only way to spread the word, really, outside of actually going to gigs and picking up flyers there. You'd go to record shops. There's no other way apart from word of mouth. That was Ben Andrews, Mark Freeth, Steve Charlesworth, Minda Nasty and Swag. 
As we've heard, punks faced lots of hostility in mainstream venues, so the absence of bouncers at the Mermaid was a huge draw, as Matthew Knight explains. I suppose looking back on it, we were, they were all like 19, 20 years old anyway. It was, it was just brilliant. It was, uh, I, I know on the lot of flyers, it got um, 7.30 to 11 or whatever, no attitude, no bouncers. And that was a big thing as well, because obviously at, at the time in the 80s, the bouncers were launched themselves. They did exactly what they wanted, and they did. And looking the way that we did, we were just like prime targets for, you know, hassle from bouncers and skinheads and stuff like that. It was just like a, a happy place where everybody accepted everybody else, and it wasn't a... It was never an issue, no, it was always, it was always good. Dancing and, and stuff was uh, a bit of an eye-opener for me because it looked like everyone was having a fight and then you kind of like pluck up enough courage to get into the middle of it and actually it's just people pushing each other around. If you fall over, everybody stops and picks you up. The first time I saw it, I mean, I don't know whether it originated, not the Mermaid, but around about that time, I suppose, in the sort of early to mid-80s, I don't know, but that was always the etiquette, you know, that you... You stop, you make sure everyone's all right. If you go into a place now, I think the general attitude of bouncers are there to, to look after you and, and to make sure the place is safe. Also, they're all registered, but at the time, none, none of the bouncers were registered. So it's basically, if you're a hard nut, you, you, you got put on the door. There was no vetting of who they were. They were a law unto themselves. I know in Reddit, she was, I, I know of a couple of occasions that bouncers have killed people. There was a famous case on Christmas Eve, and they, they did that. I mean, that was at the time I was going to the, to the Mermaid. I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, thank God, you know, thank God there aren't bouncers there. Do you know what I mean? Because they were alone to themselves and they did what they want, pretty much. And the lack of bouncers meant a lot of stage diving. One standout character from the mermaid scene was mentioned time and time again. Ivor the Diver, it was this incredible character. He just couldn't stop himself jumping off the PAs. You know he was coming, so he'd just shout, go! And then he'd, he'd just get jumped on or whatever like that. It was great. The first time I played there was with Cerebral Fix, and that was with Sacrilege, who had I'd made a feeble attempt to join about six months before from that something I put in the literal Mercury looking for a band. So yeah, it was it was good. It was yeah, it was good to see them there. Yeah, the place itself was was pretty grimy, very gritty kind of place. We'd get served served at the bar and get in the pit and get you know, and it was just great absolute chaos every time. Every time I went there, it was like. The people kind of diving off the PA, local, I guess, legends of the local scene that I kind of became friendly with, mainly being like Ivor, uh, who Ivor the Diver. First met him at the DRI gig. I believe it was that one, or it could have been the Circle Jerks one, where he was basically diving uh, off the PA and he was wearing a big trench coat and like uh, big para, uh, either para boots or Doc Martins, but he was kind of like, this is big trench coat on, which was like protecting him when he was like diving. But it, yeah, it was insane, really. But I had a few footprints uh, on my on my back and uh, various other places from those gigs. Um, but it was really good to like, you know, when you like, you dive or you, someone dives on you and you kind of like go down in the pit and then instantly you're brought back up, knowing that that, that kind of friendly community aspect of it, even though it were, you know, I think, I think the Mermaid was quite a gritty place, but there was still that element of like it was still quite friendly. Seemed like a safe environment for a couple of sixteen-year-olds. Anyway, Mermaid was quite a, it was quite a kind of hardcore environment, environment as I remember, and um, for like an underage kid to just get in there and be rubbing shoulders with various kind of like punks and trustees, all sorts, all the whole kind of like spectrum of the kind of alternative like punk and hardcore scene. When you kind of like saw those people and they weren't playing, it was always like, oh, that's, uh, you know, that's Johnny, that's Pete, uh, that's Pete Nash uh, from Doom, or that's like, that's Mickey Harris, or, you know. I did see a lot, a lot of those people around. Apart from Ivor, Ivor was the, obviously the, the standout character, really, because he was so well known and so you know Ivor the Diver I mean he, he was I used to see him at the record shop as well like at Vinyl Dreams in um, in Oasis like some real crazy unique people there was um, Nick and Brat who were sort of visually very punky compared to the other members of the the real coaches were in the audience really you had a guy called Mad Graham he's still around 
Yeah, we don't know him. No, he, he works for the circus now, and he works at places like Mosley Folk Festival, fire eating and doing tricks. He's extremely tall, maybe nearly seven foot tall. So he was there, and he had, he had a friend called Nightmare, who was a girl. And they were really wacky, far out, hair and clothes and everything, amazing people. There was a guy called Ivor, who was probably one of the few black guys he used to go. He used to be called Ivor the Diver. You always get up on the stage and dive off on a regular basis. There was a guy called Blondie who everybody was a bit scared of because he was massive and quite aggressive. And there's just like so many people. There's so many people there was so unique looking, you know. He, he, I didn't really appreciate it at the time, but people must have spent ages getting ready to go, you know. And they were in the scruffiest clothes. It would be quite not, you know, well put together and the hair would be amazing. And yeah, some real characters. And a lot of them are still, you know, people are still around, you know, the bands now, like Lou are using Rotom. They used to go, Mopsy, he's in Sucker Punch now. There's a lot of people still around from those days. It was still in what you call whatever what's left of the punk scene now in Birmingham. They're still, people are still around. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, characters for sure. A lot of the people seemed older. I remember Ivor, Ivor the Diver. And he, you know, he was 21. He was like, wow, this old guy here. <laughs> I remember him. I remember Daz Russell, people saying, there's Daz Russell, but I never spoke to him because he was about 25. You know, he was like this grandfather figure. <laughs> I know people you'd nod at and go, oh, all right. But, but Ivor was the standout because Ivor's a big, tall black guy. He was a bit older than everyone else and he could stage. Well, he did. He just stage dived the whole time. So uh, he made an impression on you. He talked to anyone as well. I was told that the mermaid crowd had a way of taking care of each other that created a freedom in the space. As Ben Andrews, Paul Catton, Stig C. Miller of Amoebics and Derek Einan explain. There was never any trouble at all. People were pretty um, drunk and stuff, but it wasn't, there was no, like, if anyone ever fell down during the sets of, you know, bands, they always got picked up again. The Birmingham punks were always fucking lovely. If someone fell over, someone would pick them up. That's what it was like, you know, as it should be. There'd be a pit, and the, the bigger the gig, the bigger the pit, you would go and watch Auntie set. And you know, all of a sudden you bloody get knocked over and you all you'd see is just like leather and smell patchouli oil. But someone would be picking you up, you know. That's that's the other thing about it. the place reeked of patchouli oil, especially if like deviated instinct were playing or somebody like that. <laughs> a vibrant scene, really. A lot a lot going on and a lot of people doing a lot of different things. A really good place to go and play. And they didn't really bother you. The bar people were cool, you know, you could pretty much do what you wanted within reason and and people did. Wasn't that you had to go for a metal detector to get in there or anything, you know? <laughs> so it was a cool place to play and and very uh, kind of DIY feeling about it all, you know? You know, if you see like documentaries, not documentaries, more like films about the early punk rock scene, really it wasn't a lot of people. You know, when people go on about the punk explosion in this country in the 70s, it's probably only like two, three hundred people in a core of scene. And it was kind of like that. So when you when you went somewhere there, like you play at the Mermaid and you'd have people come up from your end of the country that you didn't even know were going to be there. So people would come from all over and just turn up for these gigs. And they'd start kind of early in the day and we didn't usually get there till like, you know, seven or eight-ish, but they'd be going from like 5.30 or whatever. So there'd be band after band after band on and people moving all their stuff around. There was people from all over there, all the characters from back then. I couldn't really even specify who it was, but everyone, everyone that you knew from everywhere was there. I can't remember that ever ever been trouble at the moment. I played a lot of places that's been trouble. There was always, everyone was fucked up, of course, but there wasn't, people weren't stupidly aggressive. I don't ever remember there being any trouble with Nazis or any of that kind of shit back then. Not, not in the mermaid anyway. So it was a very cool place to play. Drive up in your van, bang it up on the pavement, get all your stuff out, drive off in the van, park it somewhere else. <laughs> put all your stuff in there and keep an eye on it all night. And not stuff, stuff didn't get nicked either, really. So that was cool as well. You know, your equipment doesn't get stolen. People look after it. So that was a cool thing, yeah. So this must have been for about, like, like I say, about from between 85 and 87. Must have played there three or four, maybe more times. As a kind of hub of things going on, really. But no one really knew about it. And if you're outside the scene, you didn't really know about it. If you're in the scene, then you knew about it. And, and the way people went to each other's gigs, people hitched up and down the country back then and they... They just hitchhike around and take a sleeping bag with them and roll up and crash on someone's floor in that town. And then, so a lot of people would follow bands around the whole the whole country. Pretty rough occupation because you end up sleeping in the bus stop one night in the freezing cold and like <laughs> to go to a gig and then having to beg your way in or whatever or get in on the guest list. A lot of people did that, you know, crazy times. Couldn't do that now. The whole scene was very political. Yeah, the Mermaid wasn't any more political than anywhere that like the station in Newcastle was or the Riverside. 
because it's the same sort of people that, that ran it. And I didn't mind that, really. It was just a common understanding that you can have a bit of respect for your fellow person at the gig. And, you know, people could sit and debate things that they wanted to all night. I wasn't really into that a lot because I kind of got a bit tired of that. But it was, a, a I guess, a pre-runner to what you call a safe space now. People would make sure each other was all right. If you fell over on the floor dancing, people would pick you up. If someone was completely oblivious or fucked up, then people would make sure they didn't get stepped on, you know, just kind of looking after each other. And that was a good scene because you're all like a big family. Yeah, so it was political, but not ram it down your throat political. It's just more like there's an understanding. There's a certain way we behave here and there's certain things that we do and there's certain things that we don't do. You just kind of all knew that. It was friendly, I mean, but obviously the depending on who was playing, the um the punk elements could be they're probably only aggressive to each other. I mean, I don't know any trouble up there. But I remember the, the there were fights on the dance floor and I remember the, these PA guys who happened to be huge going in and acting as unpaid bouncers to break up fights on the dance floor. I think they're probably trying to protect their own equipment more than anything else. But yeah, there, there were fights on the dance floor, certainly. There must have been at the early main dead yet gigs because otherwise I wouldn't know about it. Don't remember it happening myself, but I remember the the PA guys saying they had to wade in and pull people apart, people slam dancing and all this kind of thing. Yeah, but no, it wasn't hostile. It wasn't like you would you wouldn't you wouldn't walk in there, and I'm sure you wouldn't uh, have any any trouble in this. You know, you would just throw yourself into the mix, sort of thing. And here's Minda Nasty, Mark Freeth, and Swag. I never felt intimidated. And it's funny because I suppose there weren't those many women there. You know, it was the 80s, wasn't it? So it's like there were obviously women there, but more more blokes there than women. There was like a definite imbalance. <laughs> but I, I never felt intimidated there, which was, yeah. And, and also going there for that first gig with the Poison Girls was by being kind of like, I want to say hero, but someone that I respected. And that was the first time I'd seen them play, going in the dressing room after with Alan Heff and actually meeting someone that you like really respected and loved their lyrics and stuff like that. That was quite amazing. So, yeah, so no, I was never, I never intimidated. And, and then when I moved to Birmingham, I was always like checking out what gigs were going on at the Mermaid and I did go. Punk rock was very eye-opening for me as a kid, opening my eyes to politics and to expression and certainly to equality. You know, there were more women involved in punk rock than I ever saw in my my previous musical interests, which was glam rock. You know, I was heavily into glam rock in the mid to early to mid 70s. There were very, very few uh, women involved in glam rock. I can think of Susie Quattro and I can think of the American side of things. You know, you had the runaways. But personally speaking, I think America, it was the birthplace of punk rock. You know, the whole art school New York scene heavily influenced British punk rock. And there was already women involved over there. Patti Smith, you know, Tina Weymer, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we did have, there were some women, I guess, connected to the outsides of glam rock, but certainly punk rock brought women to the, the forefront. I mean, I wasn't very punk and quite a lot of people were, they were just scruffy denim jackets and jeans and punk t-shirts and, uh, and there was just scruffy people who had long hair and, and there was quite a few girls went as well so it was probably um, maybe 20-25% of the attendees who looked amazing as you might imagine but girls punks always look better than black punks really don't like all the makeup and everything so yeah that was, it, was a, it was a real visual feast really and of course the bands always looked amazing as well quite often so it was kind of um, community if you like really not everyone found the mermaid a warm and friendly space of solidarity and camaraderie. For some, there was a hostile edge to the place and the people. Here's Steve Watson, Justin Broderick, Tim Richardson and Steve Charlesworth. There was a bit of an infighting thing. And, and like we kind of touched on that, was real fix. It was like always talking about unity. But if you were in the metal, you wanted nothing to do with you. Your, your ideas must be stupid if you liked Slayer or something like that. There was a bit of that... I think the Krusties and, and, and all them like, kept themselves to themselves, didn't want to associate with us because we were too kind of metal. And I think Sacrilege when themselves went through that because they, they came from the, the punk scene. They eventually changed kind of almost completely into a kind of prog rock kind of metal band. And so they used to get kind of abuse and stuff. I don't know, come across as, as Mexican. It wasn't always like that. But it's just something I found and I was told when I joined 
was like, Chris, is that like Chris? Because we're in the metal and the thing, we're all idiots. And I was like, oh, well, okay. And then eventually I spoke, you know, I used to speak to them all and stuff like that. And they realised that we weren't. There's that preconception that people, if you're into metal or crossover or whatever, you don't take it seriously and, and your, your, your lyrics aren't a bit daft as well. But that's what, that's what we were like. We were daft. That was another thing. We were a bit a bit silly and we'd oft, often be pissed when we played as well. So we'd go off on a tangent. And uh, I don't know, I think the clusters took what they did very seriously and we didn't. And that was the difference, you see. I mean, what's that song for you? And into the music, fuck off, I think it's one of their songs. And I was like, well, not only just in the music, I, I agree with about equality for you know, everybody, you shouldn't be. And I don't come across as some kind of downer on clusters. It was just something I'd noticed that there was there was a lot of, there was, there was kind of backbiting and stuff like that. And especially when Napalm got bigger, you, you know what I mean? You could do all, you know, so all the bands were kind of... Uh, so I was constantly nullifying it. Yeah, I found it a re- really, myself, I found it a very scary environment. But what I took solace from was, was quite a crew of us, you know. I was never there alone. I always felt some sort of solidarity with the, the amount of people, the amount of people we were. I found it a, a, a spectacle, and I still do now. It's like when I'm in a gig, I find it a complete spectacle. You know, I find it like a sensory overload. You know, I always have done, I always felt like, Am I even here? It's like mental. And my, 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 you know, my whole experience of the mermaid is quite like, it's very dreamlike because it was hostile. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the people there were, you know, drunk and unpredictable. There's always a lot of, you know, that, that punk scene was, you know, it's just funny now because if you look back at the mermaid, because we were, were so young, et cetera, et cetera. And so much just teenage carnage was happening at the same time. You know, simultaneously you've got all these hormones and drugs and drink and nobody's got any money and, like, I was that fucking broke. The doll money wouldn't go anywhere. We'd be picking up cigarette butts off the floor to smoke. You'd you'd find people, back end of people's joints at the Mermaid, and put that into a, a Rizzler that you could just about afford and smoke that, you know what I mean? You'd be choking on the fumes of... And then staying in squats where somebody just had one chair, you know, and you'd spend the whole night drunk on Scrumpy, having walked out the Mermaid, you know, with 20 people, and it was... Pretty fucking grimy, and we were all in this together. It was an absolute sense of community beyond anything I've ever seen since. There was an absolute feeling of that we were fucking all in this together, even though there was the usual. I became quite anti that as I saw the way eventually that people just resorted to the failure of the human condition as I saw it. You know, my whole thing there gave birth to Godflesh, really, and that whole thing where. I became so sensitive and disenchanted. So in the end, it turned on itself, if you know what I mean. I became scared of people, scared of the environment. But again, I think that's more about my mental health, again, and about autism and all the rest of it. I don't think it was a, a universal uh, perception, do you know what I mean? This is more just an individual perception, which is you know clearly coloured by my own uh, mental health condition, you know, which I now see clearly. As, as the jigsaw of going through a diagnosis does, really, I guess. We were obsessed with American bands, and we... I don't know, it was a strange division at the time. I, like In my life, I never considered myself to be a punk, because punk was 1976, and Sid Vicious, and Leather, and Chains, and we were like hardcore kids, so you'd wear a T-shirt, you'd just copy American bands, T-shirt, jeans, Converse, and you wouldn't look punk. I had shortish hair. I had a skinhead once for about a month, but it made me look really madly thuggish, so I didn't bother with that. We were, we were jeans and T-shirts, but some kids were like that, younger kids. And it, people I thought were older were probably six months older But some of the bands. There were a lot of crusties, a lot of people with dreadlocks, a few kind of post-punky people, some, some much older people. Occasionally, there were a few skinheads, like bonehead skinheads. And I, I do remember one night um, being punched in the face by some massive bonehead after I'd stage dived and said something and I'd obviously offended him and he came up to me and he said I don't like you taking the piss out of the band and just punched me in the nose that, that was the only time I actually saw any violence there directed at you <laughs> yeah. so it wasn't it that wasn't usual but you you get a mixture of skinheads punks hardcore occasional goths depending on the band you know it was it, cross-section of British youth culture of the time, really, indie kids. There's some indie bands on there as well. They don't get much mention, but I remember some, whatever they called them at the time, shoegaze, acoustic, jangly-type bands, that, that sort of audience. But it would vary. You know, the more concrete socks and napalm death, it would be, I think, slightly older, more punky audience, and the indie bands would be a younger, less punky audience, really. If you'd gone in there 
without knowing anybody or seeing anybody, it would have been a pretty intimidating place to go. A lot of drunk people about being 16 and not really having a lot of money and having to spend money to get there in the first place. I didn't really drink because I, I didn't have the money. And it was more important to me to actually get to the, the gig than see a band rather than, than drink anyways. But for the majority, the atmosphere of the Mermaid meant every gig there was guaranteed to be fun. Here's Nick Bullen, Steve Charlesworth, Christian Burton and Paul Catton. It was pretty easy for people to go there. And I think the gigs were, were welcoming. They weren't marred by lots of violence as a rule. There were, there were occasions when things happened. But it was the sort of place that really, if you were going there, you probably really wanted to go. You you wouldn't have just tagged along because all your friends were. And it's like, oh, yeah, we always go near to there. It's It was out in... Um, in an area that you would have to travel to to get to for most people. You couldn't easily just get one, say, bus into the centre of the city and there you were. So the people who were there really wanted to be there. So it had a had a, a fairly positive atmosphere, I thought. I did love going to Birmingham to the, to the moment. It was an experience. <laughs> Every gig, I think, was an experience. of something crazy happened there. I think it was definitely intimidating, but once you're in in it, in the maelstrom of it, it became like a... There were so many like-minded people, really, and certainly from when I was growing up, and we didn't really have any other hardcore bands in Worcester when I was started a hardcore band. There were punk, punk bands, but not really hardcore. So seeing all these people that were in other bands and um, kind of going to gigs all the time and tape trading and all that kind of thing there was loads of people like t- doing um trading demos and things like that it was it was definitely like an intimidating environment but but it was it just felt this is all the stuff that we we're into you know this is the stuff that we've been hearing on like john peel you know and stuff like that and um seeing people's t-shirts and on the backs of their jackets and all these bands that we've recently become into was it was all yeah this is kind of my environment I, I know i understand everything here which was like really amazing kind of feeling really i mean whatever anyone says like when you're young and you listen to extreme music your kind of peers or older peers or parents they're not going to get it as much as maybe parents get what's like the young kids are listening to these days because everything's changed, hasn't it? It's like what was the alternative has now become a lot more mainstream. So, or, or accepted, not necessarily mainstream, but it's certainly accepted. So at the time, if, if, if I was playing heresy or, or napalm death in my room, like my parents were like, what the hell is this? You know, this is, it's, it's just a noise. They went, it's not even, not even music. It's not, there's no melody, there's nothing. It's just a noise. And that coupled with being, uh, having a, a sort of punk like appearance or albeit kind of not, you know, I never went, really went through a, a, a proper like kind of crusty phase, but certainly you looked uh, slightly antisocial or anti-establishment coupled with that it was just like you, you kind of not really understood by your kind of peers or your uh, or family or, or or some and some of some of your friends as well so being in that environment where everyone was the same uh in not, not the same but like everyone got what it was about was just uh, a complete uh, eye opener really it was just a guy you know it, it was it was yeah this is this is kind of like what we're into this is this is the you know the forefront of of what we what we're doing what we're trying to achieve playing music and kind of listening to music buying records and seeing the bands and just talking to the people as well it was like completely yeah felt really at home really even though i was feeling at home in very kind of not the safest areas of Birmingham, like in a lot, in a lot of uh, even the barrel organ around there, it could be you know in the in the later eighties, it wasn't the it wasn't the sort of place that uh, you'd want to be kind of frequenting sort of that that digbeth like at night. But in the gigs, it, everything was was good. It was all through all these little kind of like islands of um, 
of kind of acceptance, I guess. So that's how we we sort of found it. And it was just a massive adventure. You know, it was a bunch of bands that had, like, recorded a demo that no, no one had even bought, but as soon as they started playing, everyone would be jumping around and supporting them. That was the thing. So every Mermaid gig is a stand-up gig. And the fact that even, like, nearly 50 years later, I can still sit here and get excited talking about it. They're, they're all memorable gigs in their own way because they shaped who I am now, you know, truthfully. They, the My days at the Mermaid are massively responsible for the person I am now, you know. For reasons that seem unclear, Dazzwistle stopped promoting shows at the Mermaid. Some thought this was due to licensing, health and safety, or even the crowd outstaying their welcome in Spark Hill. Dazzwistle's floating concerts moved to city centre venue The Kaleidoscope. For many of the people I spoke to, including Matthew, it just wasn't the same anymore. I don't think it was any particular event or any particular reason. I just think it just did. I don't even think it ran its course, to be honest. The Mermaid closed and we were just devastated. I mean, absolutely devastated. But a couple of weeks later, I seem to remember it being a couple of weeks later, it might have been months or whatever, but Dazzle also started doing gigs at um, Edwards and Kaleidoscope. These places were just like a complete anathema to us because they were like, you know, towny, trendy places, you know, and they play chart music and we're like, I'm going to watch Bolt Thrower and Edwards and Dutch and the Crippins in Kaleidoscope. It's too ridiculous. It wasn't the same at all. It wasn't the same because it it felt like we, we were giving money to to stuff that we were so anti, you know what I mean? It, it, you know, we went to the gigs, we wanted to see the bands, but it wasn't the same. It wasn't particularly nice watching a doom in Kaleidoscope. It was, uh, it was weird, to say the least. So it didn't last forever. The crowd were changing. Punk was changing. As Tim says... During this period, subcultures evolved fast. I think in those days, though, things changed quickly. You know, I was early 80s, I was a mod and I was at school. And then I was in a band and we were into all kinds of stuff, R&B, Jesus and Mary Chain. Then we were into hardcore and I stayed into hardcore. Then grunge happened. Then like Manchester and dance music happened. So every two or three years... There was some new cataclysmic thing. And it wasn't unusual that I had a mate and I was in a band with and he looked like like Bobby Gillespie when he was in the Jesus and Mary Chain, always wore black, had long hair, you know, came to our rehearsals. Then one week he turned up, he had a skinhead, denim jacket, stupid T-shirt, carrying a skateboard. And we're like, what's happened? Oh, I don't like that stuff anymore. I'm into hardcore now. It's like, oh, people, would they drop out or drop into the scene? And the same kid about five years later was into something completely different. You go, oh, well, look, look at him. There was just so much going on. It was changing so rapidly. I remember another friend who was a DJ. He was, he was well into 60s stuff. He dressed like one of the Rolling Stones. He had long hair and a suit and tie and whatever. And then one day, like, you just never saw him again. I haven't seen him since about 1990s. What happened to Aid? Always oh, into um, house music now. No one ever saw him again. It was just, it's all changed. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that happens now. My kids, they listen to everything and anything and they don't belong to youth cults and they don't dress, you know, you still see goths and emos and whatever. But then it was like, I'm that, I'm this. And it just, it'll just change so much. You know, it's an exciting time, really. Exciting time in music. I think opportunities elsewhere were probably limited. So you live your life through music, you know. It seems that the crowd at The Mermaid didn't only create the conditions for great gigs. So many people told me that they had found their people. Some were living in suburbs and small towns, and so to be in a buzzing venue with people that understood their taste in music, got their politics and got them was magical. And more than 40 years later, The Mermaid community is still in contact, whether through lasting friendships, bands that are still playing together, or the Upstairs at the Mermaid Facebook group, which has more than 1,300 members, sharing their memories of the scene and keeping in touch. I remember, like, moving there, and people were going, well, have you got a job? Are you going to college? I was going, no, I just want to move there. So it was like that whole thing about, oh, you only move if you've got a job or you've got, like, you're going to college. What, what if you just want to try it out? <laughs> Now I just think, well, wow, that's quite brave of me because it was like I was signing on and I was on my own and it was like, wow. <laughs> I found a flat. It was advertised in um, Friends of the Earth. There was an advert for a flat, so I just uh, rang up the woman and said, can I come and see it? And I went and met her and we got on really well. And she said, 
said, well, I have kind of said to someone else they can have it, but I think me and you are going to get on so much better. So, yeah, you can have it. It was like a room in a shared flat. So that was the first time that I'd had a flat on, you know, wasn't on my own. But so it was quite a big step, really. And I think if I hadn't gone to the Mermaid, who knows, maybe I wouldn't have moved there. And I spent 35 years in Birmingham. So if I think of it like that, I go, yeah, it changed my life. <laughs> the mermaid changed my life. <laughs> the, the scene in general, yeah, it was massive impact. Um, even though the scene, like, there was a lot of people around in, into that scene, it, th- there wasn't in general. It was it was pretty small. So you did kind of get to know each other or know, to know people quite well. Yeah, it was good. It was, it was yeah, it was good. It seemed kind of honest, if you know what I mean, and everybody was just into it for just the love of it really it was that was it it was less ego just more people loving it and yeah it's a big impact it's uh something that's never going to leave there's the mermaid uh yeah, yeah i mean I, I could never forget that place because it was it was both intimidating crazy but brilliant at the same time I mean, some of the shows there yeah brilliant i'm still into it now you know all these years later there's a lot of a lot of friends and friendships that i made like in those early days that uh, you know a lot of people sadly kind of passed away but still quite a few people are still there still around and you know still doing it which is great i guess it's all stood the test of time really everybody's attitude from those days in the kind of sort of mid to late 80s up to now uh, there's a lot of people that are still there are still kind of exactly the exactly the same which is really lovely i think yeah, discovering a language that's that's kind of spoken by a, uh, many people, be it like a musical language, a political language, a friendship, that has kind of stood me in good stead for how I've progressed on a musical musical journey and a kind of political journey, I guess, throughout my twenties up to now. And I think those those gigs predominantly the mermaid because that was my first baptism i guess of proper proper kind of hardcore gigs and then the a periphery of gigs uh, around that time at other places in birmingham like the barrel organ or the, the, the kaleidoscope basically were the building blocks i think building blocks to to kind of how i viewed punk rock and hardcore and also you know, I've got to do it. You know, John Peel. John Peel was a massive influence. John Peel show that played a lot of those, a lot of those bands at the time. I think it has definitely helped shape my politics. You know, I was already on that kind of path anyway. And uh, but yeah, I think that definitely made me much more aware of other causes, issues. Sort of broadened my knowledge a bit. And um, yeah, definitely, it was a bit of an education politically. And the music as well, you know, the lyrics, the ones that you could understand. <laughs> you know, there was lots of lots of bands singing, not you know, not just about animal rights, about multinationals, about BP and Shell, about destruction of the environment, which when you think about where we are now, it just seems like really kind of like ahead of the, the times in terms of the thinking about the impact on the environment of um, fossil fuels, etc. I wouldn't be the person I am now if it wasn't for punk rock. You know, when we say punk rock, I mean, certainly, you know, I I was rehearsed in the same venue as uh, Napalm Death. And some of those people were, you know, we we were not in touch anymore, kind of, you know, buddies at the time. So the whole metal, punk, goth scene, there are crossovers. You know, the whole goth scene itself, I can't keep up with the subgenres. And so I had buddies, and I've still got buddies who are, you know, now a lot older, obviously, who uh, are still into different types of music, but it's still alternative music. It's still underground. It's still independent. I think it had quite a big impact. There's people I met there that I'm still very, very good friends with and see on a regular basis. There are people that I feel I'm very good friends with who I don't see so often, perhaps because they live in other countries or they live, you know, right at the end of, of the United Kingdom, away from me, that that I still really respect and like to hear about and from. I think for me it was in terms of the social networks that it facilitated were probably the most important thing for me. 
in terms of politics, I'd been exposed to a lot of political ideas prior to the mermaid and felt to some extent like I'd made sense of the the ideas that I felt were relevant and held water. So I didn't really come across anything that necessarily spurred me on to something new. What it would probably have done is reinforce what I was already thinking. And so I think really it was more the the human aspect of it, the, the, the connections between people. I think gigs have always performed that function in, in, in lots of subcultural sort of musical subgenres and always will when, when you start to realise you're not necessarily on your own and that there are other people who've, who've got ideas that are very similar. It definitely worked as a place to come together, which was not exclusively for the, the, the punk concerts, but also, say, for the indie concerts and the other local groups, you know, the reggae groups like Echo Bass, those kinds of acts who were all, again, forging social networks through being in the same physical space there. I was left-wing before that, I was left-wing after that, I was vegetarian before that, I was vegetarian after that. It probably was a microcosm of time, though, because I've got some veggie friends, but they're people sort of out of that scene. It was the one time in my life where everyone, I, I just knew I was aligned with everyone on politics, on vegetarianism, on social issues. Didn't like all the music that was played there, but I didn't dislike it. And it wasn't horrible, chart down Rick Astley or whatever else was going on. But that was probably the one time when I thought, yeah, I completely agree with all of this. But yeah, the people I went with, I'm not in touch with any of them anymore. But no, I thought it was a long time ago. Lives moved on. But that that DIY ethic and the, the fact that someone could just take a place and do it, that was that was that was quite influential, I think. I've never I'm in business now, it's not not the same thing, but it's never I've never thought, oh God, I'm not gonna do this because I can't succeed. And that's kind of that scene, isn't it? I'm gonna do a band, we're gonna be brilliant, we'll be massive. Oh, that didn't work, never mind. I'll do something else. <laughs> and it was that kind of thing, you know, that you could form a band and you could have a record and you, you could tour the world and then you could whatever and, and nothing would put you off. You wouldn't for a second think, oh, no, I might fail or no one will like this. And definitely that, that, that attitude of I like this, no one else does, it's incredibly noisy, it's never going to have any mainstream appeal, but I believe in it 100%. That's, I've definitely got that. You know, I don't care if anyone likes anything the same as me. I, I kind of like being slightly different, you know, and I never felt like I needed to fit in or conform to anything, even though I do. That attitude definitely came out of the mermaid, yeah. Family Patrol Group, friends of mine still to this day, Nightingale's eyes, still uh, see them live, you know, and of course, ones anytime they ever play, although, um, I mean, I'm not sure what's happening with them these days, but. Every time they've played Birmingham, as I did, I've been there, so superb stuff. I mean, the Mermaid is just one venue of hundreds that I've been to, and these are just a few of the hundreds of bands I've seen. And also, the friends involved with all this were just a few relative friends of all the many friends I've had over the years, and and still have. And it, it is a very positive thing indeed. It's a very positive and I love it all so yeah it's clear that the mermaid had lasting impact a personal impact and a musical impact let's get some final words from Stig C. Miller Steve Watson Minda Nasty Ben Andrews and Justin Broderick It was a vital place, a very creative place, and I'm glad that it was there. It mattered, and it uh, introduced people to a lot of things, so it was a good thing. Yeah, a good place, good people. I suppose it was a more innocent time. That mid-85 to 95 it was kind of a golden period for bands to do stuff because there weren't any particular wars on or, or major incidents or things like that. Mm. Nowadays, it's hard work, and there's too many bands. I don't know how many bands there are. It's just ridiculous. I mean, they can't all get gigs. They can't all get people going to see them and stuff. I was not even be bothered, that bothered about being paid for it. <laughs> it was just, you know, because when I was in the band, it was like we probably got our travel money, but most of the time we hitched. So you just did it because you were into it. 
and for like the fun of meeting people <laughs> just like yeah meeting people that are like-minded Ooh, it was a really exciting time politically and you just and you felt like all oh, this kind of great hope we can change things we can change things and now you look and you go actually <laughs> really you look at where we're at now and it's quite a similar place well actually worse because lots worse but um it was quite exciting it was quite an exciting time to be kind of a teenager early 20s it was really exciting and vibrant and all done without the internet the uh, swans gig was pretty life changing in terms of getting into loads of other weird music and loud music but i wouldn't say the vi- uh, um yeah it was an important place i wish it was still going it wasn't really metal it was more punk but i mean looking back it's you can see that stuff is just metal it's it's it's, it's metal, metal punk sort of hybrid, isn't it? So I really was frequenting the Mermaid between 84 and 1987. I think Napalm Death for me finished. Uh, I joined Head of David. Uh, I think when I was in Head of David, the last time we went there was two real shows as opposed to hanging out and performing. I think we saw Swans there in 87 and then we saw Pussy Glore. And I think that was about the last time it was ever, ever there, you know. Those years between 84 and 87, recounting those years now feels like a 20-year duration. It feels like a massive chunk of my life, you know, incredible amount of time. And in a way it was because, like I was saying, you know, we, we were there so often performing so frequently as Napalm Death, as Fall of Because, the pre-God Flesh Band, as Final... Oh, my God. I mean, there was often nights where I'd perform in three bands, you know. This is amazing. And just to be able to have this opportunity, this is fantastic. It, it needs to be documented for all time. This this music we gave birth to there is a worldwide phenomenon. It fucking changed music. It changed the landscape of heavy music. This is what we've done here. This is what us fuckers at The Mermaid, us crazy teenage hormonal drug-taking alcoholics who fucking didn't know what the fuck we were doing and organise a gig at a drop of a hat and walk out of school and not give a fuck. This is, and do it all ourselves. This is what we did. We gave birth to something in this little hovel of a pub in a fucking mental area of Birmingham against all odds and changed the landscape of heavy fucking music. That's the end of our stories of the mermaid. We hope you've enjoyed listening to them. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please give it a rating or share it with your friends. We'd love for more people to hear about it. At the Mermaid is a capsule production created with funding from Historic England. Music kindly provided by Blue Ruth and archive clips thanks to Uncouth Youth, Terminal Sound Nuisance and Rolling Rock videos on YouTube. Please look out for the publication too. And thanks to all the contributors. Alice Rosenthal produced this series. Find out more about Home of Metal at homeofmetal.com. They're all on this stage, they're all wimping about by the sound. They're a bunch of wimps, man. <laughs> but they're only mirrored by the bunch of wimps who are in this place tonight.